Being the Worst, Episode 36. Recorded Tuesday, September 24th, 2013. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast. Audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdulid. In this episode, Carrie and Renat discuss some of the benefits of decomposing your software into even smaller components. Some may refer to this technique as microservices or system of systems. They end their conversation with a look at how this approach was applied to the LOCAD codebase to result in a more evolvable design. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. Renat, so the last three episodes were all about client-side development, our exploration on the client, and that's still all in progress in portable class libraries. But you've been tempting us a little too much with all this uh, rewriting and new learning that's going on at work, and we just had to stop and talk about it. So can you let us know, like, what are we going to get into today? Uh, basically, we'll get into breaking stuff apart. Okay. As I've realized and learned, uh, almost all of my projects up to that point, they were, once again, overly complicated. Basically, I was designing things uh, to be monolithic and really complicated, really messed up, really linked. And after listening to awesome videos that we'll link in the show notes, uh, like Rich Hickey, then uh, Christopher Alexander... Then I don't remember another guy. So basically, all of these people are talking about the design, which is a process of like building your software. Mm-hmm. Uh, the process of creating a mental structure which will support features in the software. Uh, for example, you can think of process of growing a tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the uh, seed is planted like uh, and first leaves show up, this small plant has a specific purpose it has specific it is in a specific point in its life cycle it has to break through the ground and it has to grab as much sunlight as it can right and its skeleton like the supporting structure it's designed to support this movement this need as the tree grows actually its structure it changes vividly over time sprout grows up and it gets the trunk it gets a really uh, developed root system it gets branches it gets leaves and then in, on the leaves, you may get some fruits or nuts. Mm-hmm. And the tree in the middle of its life cycle looks completely different from the seed it was born from. Mm-hmm. And the structure of this uh, tree is completely different, and it's perfectly adapted to serve the need of supporting this tree at this very moment in life. And if we think of software as living and evolving being, it actually goes through the same steps in its life. So basically, uh, when we start with the seed. We start with a draft, a prototype, a spike, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the architecture, the structure behind this prototype, it's usually extremely simplistic. The purpose of that is to support this proof of concept to allow getting first feedback, maybe to support a minimum viable product. As software evolves, uh, we start adding uh, more features, uh, we start maybe introducing more fixes, tweaks, etc., etc., and there is a need to have some a different structure that will support all this new increased complexity. Mm-hmm. The point what I'm trying to make is that at different points in life of software, it needs different structure. This structure is usually called architecture. And 
usually when people try to design their software, they start with a fixed architecture. They try to plan architecture up front. Uh, in essence, they're trying, or we are trying, I used to try, to plan a structure for the software that will support all the future features. However, since the process of building software is like learning process, uh, as Alberto said, that like building software is a learning process and actually working code is a side effect. Right, as a, yeah. Uh, same way, when we design software, when we evolve it to adapt to new requirements, to uh, new changes in our perception of the world, we have to adapt its architecture as well. And actually, architecture at any given point in life of software is just a side effect of this adaptation process. It may be gone in a next season. It may be gone after this proud breaks through the grass, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. And then this actually raises the question. So if architecture is not something permanent, if, if it's not something that we can plan in advance because we don't know exactly with certainty how the software will look in the future, how many branches uh, does this tree need to support all the leaves? Because we don't know. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, the same seed when it's uh, planted on rich soil, fertile soil, it will uh, burst into a tree that has a huge trunk, that has maybe a root system that is okay and that has a lot of leaves because the environment allows the tree to grow that large. Mm-hmm. However, if the same seed uh, happens to land in mountains, then it will result in a completely different phenotype. It will be a tiny tree that has really small and thin branches and really tiny leaves and maybe a really vast root system simply because there is not enough sun, there is not enough water, but there are heck a lot of winds. <laughs> and hence the tree has to be really small to uh, not to be torn away with the wind, but it has to have really wide root system to get all the micro elements and water from the mountain. Why do I envision in my head that in about 10 years, you're going to go back to the mountain you just got done hiking from, we're all going to sit with our legs crossed, shave our heads, and be talking about the zen of software evolution and development? I feel very calm and peaceful right now about my software design, Renat. <laughs> I, like okay, ter- I like it. I like it. Okay, terrific. Okay. Uh, so basically, there is no architecture. Architecture that uh, somebody might envision while developing the uh, software, uh, it might be gone within the next iteration. Actually, it's better begun because there is nothing worse than a software that has design needs that outgrown the architecture. Mm -hmm. For example, if tree grows and if it suddenly gets to grow too many fruits and the branches are not thick enough or are not structured enough to support these fruits, then they are either will break down or the tree will die of lack of nutrients simply because it didn't have enough leaves and roots to support that or it will just suffer painfully. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if we develop software and if we uh, kept on adding new features, just simply plugging the feature here, plugging the feature there, uh, then at some point we might arrive to a situation where these features continue to be plugged but the mental picture of features is kind of complicated. Basically, people uh, see too many things in one place and there are kind of entangled relations. For example, picture a toolbox and you keep on adding new tools that you buy to this toolbox. And maybe when the toolbox uh, was initially emptied and you put a few tools there, uh, it was okay to use them. However, as you kept on cramming their hammer, pliers, nails, etc., everything that you've got, 
then at some point this toolbox will be full. And it will be actually a complete pain in the neck to try to get something from the toolbox because it can be completely covered underneath uh, the other tools. And so you would need to completely turn the toolbox upside down to try to find something in the mess. Yes. So what is the solution? One option, one extreme is to throw away a few tools if we're talking about the software to uh, remove unnecessary features. Mm -hmm. Another solution is to try to reorganize toolbox. Maybe to get a bigger toolbox that has like separate compartments that will allow you to think and somehow sort similar tools, similar appliances into the same compartments. What do you believe is the optimal? Well, (laughs) uh, there is no optimal thing. It all depends. And in case of toolbox or more specifically the way we organize tools, is our design to store tools and to actually to use them. If we're thinking about the software, the way we arrange components in software, the way we arrange features, the way we arrange them in our mind, it's actually like the design of the software. So as the software grows, as the software evolves, the design has to evolve with it to stay clean and to support like all the complexity, also to break it down. And one of the things that I've came to realize, well, not really realize, but I've learned from people much smarter than I am, is good design involves a great deal of breaking things down or decomposition. Mm -hmm. So basically, this comes from the question, how actually do we come to this design? How do we organize design process? How do we evolve our software in a way that at each point of its life cycle, the structure of this software, the mental model of this software is adjusted in such a way that it's relatively easy or maybe it's optimal for the developers to keep pushing the software at exactly at this point. Mm-hmm. And one of the approaches of thinking about that is think in terms of the design decomposition, about uh, taking things apart and in separating them. For example, imagine somebody who is building a, a machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't actually take a big piece of metal and start hammering like the complex machine together. They actually start to think of how this uh, complex machine engine or whatever, it can be broken apart into smaller pieces that can be processed or created separately and then assembled back together. That's how through the course of human evolution, people came up with concept of, for example, nuts, bolts, springs, whatever uh, parts go into the uh, <laughs> machines. And if we look at each of these pieces uh, that surround us in, uh, and help to create complex machinery, each of the pieces is extremely small. It's, uh, well, they tend to be extremely small. They tend to be extremely simple. They tend to be extremely focused on one thing. And more than that, each of these pieces, they are designed to be put back together. Yes, Legos. Or Legos, well, Legos are kind of look alike. In case of machineries, uh, each component is really small and focused, and they don't always look much alike. Each each one is specialized. And I came to realization that if we're talking about software design, each component of the design should be like really small. It should be standalone. It should be about one or two things. Basically, single responsibility princess applies here. And you design these components to be composable back together. So basically, you take a business problem and you break it down. You try to disassemble it into small components while keeping an eye on the fact that these components will then be composed together. Mm -hmm. 
So basically, then this might bring a question. Why would I bother to actually break something apart? Basically, to create a burden of finding a way to break something apart with the perception that I'll actually still put it back together. Mm -hmm. As opposed as implementing this business uh, problem or solving this business problem in one big chunk. Uh, without all the connections, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, tightly coupled versus loosely coupled, all, all that stuff. Yeah, so why do we, not only loosely coupled, the components might be really tightly coupled, but they're still separate. I see. So basically, we separate the components with the idea that we'll put them back together. And why is that? First of all, when the actual components are small, when you're working on that individual component, you know exactly its boundaries, Actually, it's a huge mental relief <laughs> uh, because, for example, if your component is a tiny application, it's a tiny service or it's a tiny program or a tiny aggregate that fits, sometimes even fits on the screen and you don't need to worry much about the outside world as long as you uh, maintain the contracts. It's actually a huge relief and you can implement this component really fast. Then if your uh, system can be decomposed in multiple components, which can be created separately, but are designed to work together. You can actually distribute the development of uh, these components between multiple people. You can scale out the development. Also, if your system is designed to be bro broken apart, and that's actually what I already, I'm already seeing with blockhead systems, and sometimes you can discover that new business problems, they don't require writing a completely new software. You can actually take some of the existing components and compose them back in a slightly different way to solve the problem. Mm -hmm as long as you decompose them properly. So you can get benefit of reuse. Then, if when each component is designed to be small, and it has to be, well, it's designed to communicate with other components, uh, preferably via the messaging or uh, one-way uh, remote procedure calls, uh, which is kind of form of messaging anyway, it actually becomes much simpler to uh, test your system. So you get a system that it's much safer to evolve. And actually, if you're thinking of your system as being implemented from multiple small components, and if the component is sufficiently small, you can start thinking about disposable apps. Like you write a small component uh, like in a really hacky way. For example, storing everything in memory. As long as it works, it good, it's good enough. Mm -hmm. uh, then after you assembled, if it works properly, you can then say, okay, so it works. Let's rewrite these components to be slightly more efficient. And actually, we have uh, really huge performance requirements here. So uh, we'll take this single component and swap it with a much better optimized implementation. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, breaking things apart with an eye of composing them back together to solve business problems, it has a lot of benefits. Once again, in my perspective, the biggest benefit is to simplify to give you more peace of mind because you have less things to worry on uh, when you're focusing on a single component. And this might actually create a question of how actually do we find the perfect way of uh, decomposing a system yeah. into components? <laughs> yeah, because I, I think most people are going to hear this and naturally agree that you know these principles are, are fairly common and breaking things down and it's easier to think about, easier to deal with, all that stuff. But they also want to know well, how many different tools, languages, operating systems, etc., do I need to know to be able to do this? And in addition, what are some of the ways, thoughts about 
how to make the recomposition and gluing these things back together uh, maintainable and livable and not more pain than the burden that the other approach is, you know, those kind of things. Well, I think the solution is just follow the nature, follow how people do things outside of software development. For example, uh, when tree starts sprouting, it has no idea of how many branches it will have uh, two years down the road. Mm-hmm. It's just genetically engineered by the evolution to try the combinations, to try multiple combinations, and keep combinations that will stick. For example, it might uh, send a few sprouts in two different directions. And the sprout that gets more sun uh, is more likely to survive, and the sprout that doesn't get sun might actually dry out and fall down. Uh, when people are organizing their toolbox or cabinets, they might actually go through a multiple iterations trying to organize things one way or the other way until they find a way that fits. Uh, when you're trying to organize tools uh, in your tool shed or in, when you're organizing stuff in your kitchen, you go through multiple iterations, like putting things apart and then actually seeing how they work together. Same way it's uh, with software development. You start with a small prototype. You start with a small draft and you hack together a quick implementation. It works or it doesn't. Then you try to actually break it down into separate contexts, like just like the context that we're talking about in domain-driven development, maybe. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you take another uh, perspective and try to take apart using communication or try to take apart things using a temporal decoupling and like add some messaging and cues. Basically, though, like domain-driven design is one of the ways to look at software, uh, trying to find uh, ways to break it apart using like this context mapping and ubiquitous language. Yes, uh, you can use events as an event-centric approach to try to break things apart. Thinking that everything is co- composed of events that fly around that are maybe stored in the event store, uh, and then you try to organize uh, from that perspective them into the aggregates try to distinguish commands, etc. I think that's an unstorming approach that was introduced at the, uh, in the Belgian DDD community recently by Alberto and the other awesome guys from there. Mm-hmm. So basically, a higher-level perspective is that uh, you look at your software, you look at your business problem, and then you try to slice it in various ways, in components, in like small th- elements, smaller elements than a whole. And while slicing them, you make sure that they'll be composable back together, and then you see how it works. This process might require a few iterations, but in the end, you'll have uh, something that is composed of smaller components. Then, as development goes further, uh, you might find that one component is too complicated, and you'll try to break it down further. So basically, you're dividing your system into small cells. And uh, this division, this structurization, is not predefined. Because you never know how your learning process will go. You never know how, what will be the business environment of your software or a company. So this design process is focused on a few simple principles. First principle is to try to decompose, is to try to break things apart along different lines. And different methodologies might provide different approaches to finding these lines. Second principle is to iterate, to do a lot of small, quick iterations. And smaller components are, more focused they are, easier it will become to uh, do these iterations. Because once you've done with the initial breaking apart, you can actually iterate within a small component. And actually, when you have a system that is deployed and contains and consists of multiple components that are choreographed to work together, 
then you can actually iterate with the system further by simply taking one component, replacing it within our implementation, swapping the implementation, and the rest of the system will not even notice. Mm-hmm. And also, that's probably side twist here. If you design your components, well, they, they'll need probably to interact in some or the other way. Uh, and if you design them so that they'll interact through the simplest interface possible, then you'll have more chances of falling into the pit of success. For example, take a look at the Unix ecosystem. The Unix way of programming involves actually building a lot of small tools, or console tools, for example, that are designed to do one thing, and they do it really well. And then they interact over one single interface, it's like pipes or text files. Uh, and then people actually compose them together to do a, a lot of things. For example, Git uh, is a marvelous example of that. Implementation-wide, or uh, from the perspective of code purity, it's a horrible hack. <laughs> uh, it contains of multiple programs, uh, tiny programs that mess up with index files with this content-based addressing uh, in the storage where files are stored by their hashes. Uh, I think that different sub-programs of JIT written using different languages. Some of them are small scripts. Mm-hmm. Yet, this hacky, decoupled nature of the Git is actually what helped it to evolve so fast and become one of the best, or even the best, version control system. Some people might complain about the complexity of Git. Uh, some people might complain about the complexity of Unix. Uh, it's, I think it's more of a personal choice mm-hmm. and ch- uh, specifics of this environment you're in. However, for the purpose of developing complicated software, like uh, this approach of breaking things down in small pieces where uh, a person can work uh, on a small piece individually, it's much better than having like ivory tower architects and large outsourcing teams that will work on software and that will result in Windows (laughs) 8.1 where they move the button. (laughs) Well, without getting into Windows 8.1, I would say that what you said before, I I would be very surprised if most people hearing this uh, wouldn't agree with uh, what you said there. Like, I I don't know who wants to not be able to think about a focused problem and solve that specific problem in one chunk and not have to worry about all those other details. Well, obviously, like, if you have mental capacity or if you are in the morning and, like, your brain is completely refreshed and you feel that you're looking at your software and it's okay for you to try to juggle uh, 12 balls at once, then you can try to think of the system in its entirety. However, like if your system is broken down, you get the option of actually focusing on some of the areas and investing effort there. Yeah. If your system is like some complete monolithic architecture that is entangled, you have no other way of working with that other than looking at it, at it in its entirety. Because if you don't load the entire system in your memory, if you don't think about everything at once, then you risk introducing multiple bugs with a single change. And that's the side effect of really entangled things. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, as we know from the psychology, I believe, well, at least there is a belief that a person cannot hold more than five plus minus two things at once in his memory. Mm -hmm. In order to hold more, they need a way to somehow group them, to somehow organize them in memory. So I think all of those things, at least to me, uh, make a lot of sense and and find myself nodding my head saying, of of course, this sounds great. But what comes to mind and what might help 
me and others make this more concrete is if we took a step back and said, okay, Renat, so you use some of the other approaches from maybe 2010 and you had some systems at LOCAD that you were looking at and finding what kinds of problems that led you to explore this alternative approach. And maybe you can compare and contrast and say, well, for example, I started with a bigger architecture design that resulted in a system that looked like this. I didn't like that component because of this. And I tried it this new way and I built it like this from scratch. So my seed looked like this and I ended up with this. And here's why I like it more. You know, take us on that journey if you can. Okay. Speaking of the components, so basically uh, the reason which drove me well, crazy and towards uh, something more simple is that there was too much development friction while developing using, for example, a classic Locat Secure stack. Okay. Uh, the stuff that I've been preaching and sharing for quite some time. And, you know, there is always this tendency, this attempt to do things, to make things simpler, to do things more efficiently, to make your mind more free, more focused. Mm-hmm. Well, pr- some might call it uh, laziness. <laughs> and so I've been experimenting. So I've been uh, trying different approaches. And most of the times, like this experimenting and trying different approaches were just involving listening to other people, how other people uh, build systems, mm-hmm. or uh, what actually other people are doing when they're building systems. And then, like, doing small iterations, or maybe trying to do things slightly different uh, while developing different versions or uh, different software product. That's how, actually, architecture was uh, developing. And there is this great guy, Christopher Alexander, who wrote a lot about design and parent language. And I think the main driven design kind of stems from this area. Hmm. And so the process that happened in architecture kind of repeats itself in software. People are trying new things. And so uh, while trying new things, like you get maybe a slightly different twist on the things. And sometimes you might encounter approaches that make your life so much simpler that it feels like a huge uh, mental shift, although on the outside it might be something new. For example, previously all my components, they were kind of decoupled, but they were sending messages through either, like when the system was wired to run on Windows Azure, they were sending messages by putting them into the queues Mm -hmm. on Azure. Or uh, when the system was configured to run on file system, components were uh, sending messages by putting them uh, as files into the folder. And then another component would scan this queue by uh, getting the next file from the folder. Okay. Well, and some uh, other components were actually uh, also file-based. When you, for example, uh, you have a view projection which subscribes to a stream of events, either by receiving them through the wire or by uh, pulling new events from the uh, event storage. Mm-hmm. And this view projection kind of caches and denormalizes uh, needed, needed new representation by pre-calculating cached views mm-hmm. and putting them somewhere, usually in the files or uh, blobs. And then the web client, for example, it pulls these views by uh, read, actually reading the files. So I guess that the result of the, the views, the, the result of the projections yeah. was one way of communication because the, the consumer of the view is another component that didn't have to care about how it was created. Absolutely. Got it. Okay. Uh, so it worked okay. And actually, it's a reasonable approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, it's like... It still uh, brings some friction. So much simpler approach, as I discovered, for example, to maybe send messages, send one-way messages, is actually to do a web service call. Yeah, I know web services are old, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) Uh, However, uh, when you're 
sometimes it's okay. And if you actually uh, link your systems using JSON methods over, uh, like JSON puts, gets, posts, deletes over the HTTP, mm-hmm. suddenly you get a huge benefit, for example, that you can stick a fiddler in the middle and you get immediately get a human-readable representation of what the heck is happening on. Mm-hmm. And in this example, using the HTTP uh, approach to communicate instead of what, queues and messages or what? Yes. Okay. Uh, for example, remember uh, this registration sample what, that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, when a user registers, he like submits some information. This information has to be checked, uh, verified on the backend, and then backend has actually to uh, invoke multiple uh, components. It has to create a security information for the customer security account. It has to create uh, initiate new. Uh, customer profile, and only afterwards, when all this is done, uh, customer uh, registration is completed and he might log in. Mm-hmm. And previously, all these components were communicating by sending around a lot of messages. Yes. Like registration started, registration failed, or uh, registration initiated, and then customer profile created, etc., etc. Okay. Events were uh, triggering commands, commands were creating more events, some events were uh, resulting into the updated views, which were pulled by the UI, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Right. Then, uh, like the way I've shifted in the recent implementation is that, yes, when customer registers, it, actually, it is a call from the web UI to the uh, backend API, which is a, simply a sem- a service stack service. Mm-hmm. It's our application service in this case. So the call is direct, which means that there is no temporal decoupling, there is no queues. If the backend is down in this case, in this implementation, then the front end, the web UI, will be frozen, <laughs> as it seems. Uh, however, so basically, uh, the, there is a call to the backend saying uh, start registration. And then a front end, all it knows is to start pulling, checking another web service, saying uh, what is the status of the registration with this ID. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, in the backend, like when the method is called, this web service it actually puts the stuff into the internal queue, or it just starts calling all the other services in between. And some of the calls will be wired to the aggregates, and these aggregates will be produce events. These events can be published to the ev- event store. So basically, we just slightly shifted the perspective. However, like what was previously domain services and which were wired as instances within the double dispatch, the aggregates from application services, now are kind of, in my case, became remote service calls. For example, before, I used to have iEmail sender domain service, which was an instance, a class with an interface, and this interface was passed in. Mm-hmm. In the newer implementation, this interface is no longer an interface to a specific implementation of the class that exists in the same process, but it's actually a service stack interface. Uh, uh, basically, it's an interface to send messages. And uh, when this call happens, it's actually the message, the H, uh, JSON call, goes through to the uh, component in the same server. Or I actually swap, I can swap everything in the background and to put this email service, email component on a completely different server. Nobody will even notice. It's an interface to send an email message. Yes. Got it, Okay. Okay. And actually, as I realized, so basically now I used to have in-process interface that would queue and then send messages. 
And then I shifted kind of implementation a little bit, and uh, this interface no longer is linked to the specific class in the system, but it uh, invokes a web service call. Mm-hmm. And so I have a service that is responsible for email sending, or it first queues emails and then sends them, as a small application, as a small program, as a small class, which is really small standalone, but it lives in a separate project. Uh, I can deploy it in the same application or I can deploy it in a separate server. This system, registration process, can use this email, emailing capabilities. But also any other system in Locat can actually use the same emailing capabilities if they have the uh, security key. So basically I have kind of implemented Locat specific email sender once and I no longer have to uh, go around and copy. I no longer have to uh, deploy multiple instances of email sender component in multiple systems. No longer I actually need to provide like all the email credentials for every single application. This single component contains all this configuration and it can be deployed at one place. This sounds similar to the the goals of the older, quote, older service-oriented architecture kind of stuff where there's all the standalone components. But maybe this is more of a hybrid of, yeah, I kind of want to achieve that where I have these independent components that any software in my entire company can reuse. But... I don't really recall off the top of my head like what ended up sort of sucking about SOA versus like why this is better or whatever, but or unless it's the same thing. But what's your thoughts on that? So basically, I believe the problem of SOA, well, aside from the fact that I think it's called uh, sexually transmitted disease in Deutsch or Norwegian, <laughs> yeah. uh, is that it has a completely wrong focus. It focuses on services. It focuses on the impl- implementation details. Mm. It focuses on the technology, which is wrong. Well, maybe it, it's not wrong. It might work for some companies. However, I believe that somebody can get much better results if they focus on the real business problem. If they focus on implementing, like learning more about this business problem. And while learning more, structuring their knowledge about this information, uh, about this business problem by capturing it in the code. However, while capturing it in the code, trying to make this code as focused, as decomposed, as uh, separated as possible. So basically, we're kind of creating, it's not only a domain model, because domain model is uh, in the domain-driven sense, it's our understanding of how business works. Mm -hmm. But we're creating something bigger here. uh, We're constraining this domain model to be designed in such a way that it has to be also as simple as possible, as focused as possible, and as designed for recomposition and future evolution as possible. So basically, as all composers or poets or architects do, I mean architects of the buildings, is that we're adding more constraints on our design process. Mm -hmm. We're saying that not only we need to have software that matches to the real world, but we also need to make our life more complicated. We have to make sure that these software and mental uh, representations are Post of small elements which are uh, designed to work together and that we at each step of the software's life will be reconsidering this structure to make sure that there's always some free room left in, our, in this toolbox for solving business problems, that the branches, that the elements of the software are strong enough and have enough space to support new features of roots of labor, etc., etc., so once the podcast is over and I'm staring at Visual Studio going like, what was Renat talking about? Uh, I would, which I think I understand, is I believe I'd be looking at Visual Studio at the old LOCAD registration example, the sample, and I'd have 
sort of not multiple bounded context, but I would definitely have multiple responsibilities in one Visual Studio project that had things about uh, the websites in there. The the client happened to be in the solution, the, the website that was mm-hmm. displaying. Mm-hmm. I had things about uh, registration IDs and all the events that go along with it, plus all the other stuff that was making the entire solution work altogether. In the new approach, I would launch a simple Visual Studio solution that has this thing called I can send emails, and all it cares about in that entire DLL project, whatever outcome is, exactly. is, is here's my service stack thing. Send me an HTTP post or whatever that has these parameters for what you want in the email, and I will send the email. Yeah, and one of the projects, it will be a simple .exe file console that exposes like some way to talk to it. For example, service stack API, service stack service, that exposes method like uh, send email. And in the background, like this would actually... All it will do is print a console message saying send email. So uh, where, where's that running then? You can, uh, like for the development purposes for a start, you can actually start it as a, like uh, you can have five small console apps mm-hmm. talking to each other and each of them is launched as a separate process. So I mean like in production, is it just a Windows virtual machine and launch, literally launching consoles or what? You can do that. Or uh, basically the idea is to have things decomposed. And once uh, things are decomposed but designed, are designed to work together, you can always compose them for something for the environment that is around you. For example, I'm developing these elements as completely standalone. Mm-hmm. However, uh, when they're in production, they're actually loaded by a single uh, Windows Azure service. So basically, Windows Azure service, uh, this uh, service, it has references to all of the components and it simply uh, launches them inside of the Windows Azure. I see. Oh, like in a worker role? Yes, exactly. Okay, I see. So because you have these, you put that additional architectural design burden on yourself to make them composable, you're able to create a new Azure service, which happens to be your production deployment model, that can call upon these individual HTTPable components and say, fire all these up and basically become a service stack service and listen and make the magic happen, basically. Exactly. Okay. And uh, this creates uh, multiple benefits. First of all, we actually don't deviate that much from the previous stuff that we're talking about. For example, previously we were thinking about the context, uh, about the bounded contexts, and we we're trying to have one project per bounded context, yes. generally. Yes. Uh, now what we're doing is actually saying, hey, can we actually take this registration bounded context and maybe break it into more components so that it will be simpler than it was before? And as I actually experienced already, for example, working on this new local functionality with Alex, the development was faster, simply because I could crank out the service side, the backend API, but the implementation would be really hacky. For example, instead of returning the view from the projected view, like uh, this service would simply load the entire aggregate, which would involve replaying events, then get some information from that aggregate state property and return it to the web service call. Uh, it was extremely hacky, but it was extremely fast. We were able to iterate fast. And then I was always kept in my saying back in my mind that if this thing works, then I'll take a little bit more time to write it properly. Right. So because the API wasn't going to change from his perspective, it was just send me this thing, ID, whatever, and I'll give you an answer back. He didn't have to care that you didn't bother to write projections and views yet. You just load it up in aggregate state in RAM and say, here, thank you. Go away. Absolutely, absolutely. So basically, uh, breaking things apart down in the components, it creates additional burden, but it kind of adds even more boundaries, even more decoupling, even more stability in your system. 
and allows you to swap implementation to change things uh, inside these components if things hold. If things don't hold, okay, you throw away components. And your new email component, do you now consider in its own project when it's just all it cares about is email now, do you consider that its own sort of mini bounded context that only has the language of email in it? Or is that do you think of that something differently? Well, bounded context and domain-driven design approach is just one of the ways to perceive the problem mm-hmm. so that we can break it uh, down later. Okay. So uh, I might consider it to be part of the communications bounded context, which involves emails, maybe us interacting with code base repository, which contains ex- exceptions, or, and maybe uh, communicating with our uh, CRM. Mm-hmm. Then if the system evolves and uh, I think they need to break this thing down, I might discover two separate co- bounded contexts. But right now, in, if you're applying sort of a DDD thinking to it, you would use the common language of how do I communicate with my users via email, text messaging, etc. And the bigger words you care about are, are things like send text message, send email, and that's the shared language yes. in that bounded context. And then inside are just implementations uh, of the components that don't really, I guess, they don't really have a word in DDD. You would just call them components <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Well, components, models, it doesn't matter. Yeah, as okay. long as it's uh, something small, it's something that basically it's like small, tiny application that can be, I don't know, a few classes, maybe five, four classes long, but it, that it's completely simple, transparent, does one thing, and it's completely disposable. I think what I was trying to ask, and I didn't occur to me until now, was if you had a communications-bounded context and this email thing was inside of it, is there a DDD vocabulary word to speak about it, or there's really no DDD official way to call whatever this email thing is right now? <laughs> uh, well, I'd call it a small context. So basically, context is uh, something that has a specific boundary around that. Mm-hmm. And large contexts, which are about the same language, same vocabulary, mm-hmm. uh, it's called bounded context. Right. But this is kind of a smaller context, and bounded contexts in this case are uh, composed of these contexts. I see. And it can be called like microservice, cool. micro application service. Okay. Tiny executable, whatever. Got it. Cool. I'm inferring from your tone that Mm -hmm. you like this result better than what you had before. And if that's true, how would you summarize why you think you like this new way of approaching things better than the other? Uh, So basically, yes, I definitely like this new approach more than all my previous attempts. Reasons being that it's much simpler. It's like easier to think about. It's easier to reason. It's more fun. <laughs> then I suddenly get a lot of new benefits that I w- uh, wasn't possible before. For example, before uh, when I had to test the component in uh, development, uh, when I wanted to send a message to component to see the outcome, like to play with different messages, message options, uh, I had to write a small C-sharp client that would actually create this message, serialize it, and put it into the file or uh, send it to the Windows Azure. Mm-hmm. Now, like when I'm doing stuff, I just enable Fiddler and all the internal inter-service calls are suddenly visible. And because I'm adding one more constraint, actually, to my system, I'm trying to make sure that communication is aligned with REST constraints, which is a really interesting and exciting thing in its own. 
So because I'm aligning with REST, one of the side effects is that uh, the APIs are potentially uh, more easier to evolve and they're more scalable. But the short-term benefit is that I'm getting a lot of tools that can be used. Fiddler, for example, one of those tools. It's simply a simple proxy that sits between sits somewhere and it can uh, it shows HTTP calls that happen. It shows like the request and it shows response. And then uh, I can actually, it, since it records requests and responses, so I can take any request to any uh, service, and then I can actually edit it and then resend. So previously when we were talking, for example, about uh, debugging a faulty system, uh, we were talking about uh, ascending, capturing a message that triggered an exception and then resending this message into the queue. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's the same thing, but we're resending HTTP request. And better than that, some of these requests, uh, they can be composed in the browser window mm-hmm. because it's HTTP, for God's sake. <laughs> so basically, uh, the, I, the, one of the advantages of breaking these things apart and making sure that they are bridged together uh, using something dead simple and used all, by people all over the world is that I suddenly get more tooling, I suddenly get more tools, tricks, or scalability options available for me. For example, I used to host use inside uh, the blob storage or file storage. However, as I realized, in some cases, I can simply keep the views in memory, dumping them occasionally to the disk, and this would create, this would lead to almost instant response times. Or, as I've tried in uh, one of the deployments, I could actually take web client, like uh, customer UI, and take this component that is responsible for uh, projecting uh, events into the views and serving them, and I can bundle them together in one single web row. And since they're together, since their lifetime is together, I can actually, instead of storing the stuff in files, I can store them in memory. Hmm. So basically, I get more options. Yes. And then since I'm storing stuff in memory with maybe optional, uh, occasional snapshots to the disk, I'm no longer limited by the key-value storage. I can store really complex structures in memory. I can store uh, concurrent dictionaries in memory. I can use structures optimized for fast access and retrieval, etc., etc. And I can optimize the implementation uh, as I need. So I'm trying to frame in my mind, if I think about the first year of what we've been talking about and how those concepts would evolve and be applied to add some of this new spice on top or, you know, change it a little bit. I'm trying to think, I'm looking at the Getting Things Done project and wondering, like, uh, I wonder what we might be able to do in that project to maybe show, hey, we need to implement this feature. We're going to implement this new thing using this new approach so that at least at this point in time over the next X months, we'd be able to see sort of how we started one way and how this new approach was used to build a whatever component. And I think it'd be easier for me to compare and contrast mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the benefits or, or not, you know, and you'd be able to point out exactly to us and the listeners, you know, see how okay. over here we had to do blah and over there we had to do this and that kind of stuff. So, okay. So basically the stuff that we've been doing before investing time in uh, messaging, ubiquitous language and domain driven design, it's not in vain. We actually learned one of the ways, one of the best ways to take a business problem and break it down in separate bonded contexts and also highlight the unchanging parts of this uh, environment, like the language, the words, mm-hmm. uh, which is used to actually for the bounded context to communicate with each other, for, which is used by other external entities to talk to these bounded contexts. Mm-hmm. And the recent things that I've been talking about is actually uh, there are more ways to keep on breaking this existing 
elements into smaller parts. Hmm. So their external boundaries, which are already defined, will stay intact, like they're valid. But we might find some ways to actually break this aggregate, to break this, uh, some of the views, some of the states, in something smaller and simpler, which is uh, more transparent, which is less complicated, like there is less code, maybe which is disposable, but that can also be composed to solve different problems, to solve more problems. I think it should be possible to break down this client in such a way that it would be possible to recompose into a web UI uh, with, the, with the backend with it. Yeah, I think probably what you've been working on, uh, similar, like maybe like a social authentication for, for the clients to use, we could probably use this component approach to say all of our clients, web, iPhone, whatever, they all need the ability to ask a web service, please authenticate this thing and tell me mm-hmm. who it is and load mm-hmm. the appropriate trusted system. That's probably an example that would fit into the GTD thing that we could build to uh, not only make Absolutely. a reusable component, but make sense, yeah. Actually, to make it more fun, actually, uh, as long when you follow this road of breaking things towards more simple, more fine-grained libraries, projects, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mm-hmm. uh, and as long as you use common, like the simplest possible uh, approach for making things communicate, either text files or HTTP calls, at some point you might realize that you don't need actually to implement this component A uh, because there is a, this tiny, small, fine-grained library that is used uh, somewhere else, or that is published as open source, and you can actually plug in place of this component. Mm-hmm. And maybe this uh, library is running on Java, but it's that simple to run separate uh, virtual machines, so we can launch it side by side, and suddenly, hey, you have this authentication model that you don't even need to implement, it's already there. You just mm-hmm. need to deploy and maintain it. Yes. And uh, for the sake of the authentication, I think it's on the web server, though. Uh, for example, service stack, it provides authentication via Twitter, Facebook, Gmail, et cetera, et cetera, out the box. Yeah, and, and just to your point of swappability, you, you have potentially that built in the service stack. You have Azure Mobile Services. You have all these other third parties that basically say, here's an HTTPS way to ask me who this user is, and you can swap them out however you want, as long as your service only says, I don't care. Just tell me the URL to ask, and I want a unique ID back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You know. uh, and actually, like, for example, if we're, once again, if we're using this approach of using HTTP calls, JSON over HTTP, then, heck, we get the benefits of being able to exploit the tooling and methodologies and uh, captured knowledge that is used to build the biggest dis- distributed system in the world called World Wide Web Internet. Yes. Uh, and some people say, hey, HTTP is too slow for that. I need some dedicated middleware like RabbitMQ, MQP uh, for our dedicated enterprise needs. More likely than not, enterprise needs of this customer are far less... Uh, <laughs> than the far entire smaller globe. Than the entire globe. <laughs> and if this dead simple thing works, and it allow, even if it allows even script kitties to hack somebody's sites using like some stupid tools, if it allows a lot of interesting and magic thinking, things to happen, then probably it's like the technology is applicable for your software project. And so, uh, for example, when we're talking about this uh, URI structure, uh, uniform resource identifier, and like when you're passing this URL uh, to some other system, you know, suddenly you can compose, like for example, keep components on different machines, but make them look uh, as if they are part of the same URL, by using something like Nginx or some web server that does, or some proxy. Mm-hmm. 
all of a sudden you get the capability to actually cache your views by putting a re reverse proxy in front of this web service that contains like this uh, view projector and view query engine. And all of a sudden, this uh, small component can basically subscribe to events uh, being published from another component. And all it will do, it will denormalize them. And then uh, whenever somebody asks a question about this kind of view, it will return a result. And it can store the stuff in the memory, or it can store it on some really slow media. But if you, take, if you want to scale this in a badass way, you just take an existing Apache server, like uh, Nginx, or, I don't know, varnish, uh, and you just configure it, and you point it to use uh, to pass through HTTP requests uh, to that view service, suddenly you get almost linear scalability because you can put as much uh, proxies as you want, and you, you can put them behind a single uh, URL. So another component that is calling this view component knowing only a single URL, it will not know, but this request will bounce to one of these uh, pro proxies and if the request is new enough, it will go through the proxy to the view, and then it will go back. Mm -hmm. So it will be cached. Yes. And more than that, you might not even have your own proxy in the middle. However, if a request is like JSON over HTTP, and you supplied all the proper uh, HTTP cache headers, this request might be cached by some internet service provider in the middle, because they try to speed up their traffic. And they will cache your view according to the view policy that you set. Mm -hmm. Or maybe this uh, view request will be cached inside the operating system cache until this view is expired. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, you get the entire internet ecosystem that is designed to support this kind of request, and it kind of helps you to get a more scalable application. Yes. So uh, that actually leaves you with the opportunity to uh, not even improve performance of your once-written hacky components. <laughs> yes. So I think it's by default, try to apply these semi-universal approaches, technologies, and patterns to componentize things as much as you can until you prove otherwise that you really, really do need direct TCP socket communication and some other non-standard protocol to because you have such a, a real-time performance mission to Mars or something. But until then, try to take advantage of some of these common protocols that have had a decent uh, history of proving themselves across the entire planet. Well, so basically using H uh, JSON or HTTP or any other uh, approach that makes sense mm -hmm. uh, is basically one of the ways to add more simplicity to the software. Of course, you might find uh, that some of the components uh, or maybe two components communicating together, JSON or their HTTP is too uh, slow for them. Okay, so you just swap these three components and you put three other components that talk via uh, TCP. Mm -hmm. So other components will be talking to them still uh, via the slow protocol, but these three components, maybe it's like nodes in the cluster exchanging information and replicating it, uh, they'll be talking via extremely fast approach. So basically when we're uh, breaking things into smaller contexts, and we take big contexts, you break it in smaller contexts, we break it into smaller contexts or components. So basically, we still can optimize. We can still choose technologies. It's just a matter of the situation. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Uh, so basically, uh, what I, I guess what I was saying about uh, JSON uh, over HTTP or XML over HTTP is that it's good enough rule of thumb technology for messaging, for communication. Basically, it works for the web. It works for really small applications. Of course, you can switch from that 
Uh, you can use dedicated queues in each specific situation. You can use MQP, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. But for the default scenario, it's good enough. Cool. I think uh, at some point soon, we need to take this more conceptual, theoretical conversation and pick something to say, okay, everyone, uh, here's an example. Here's some code to look at and start absorbing, like, what would you actually do? I don't know when we'll get to that. I'm not making any promises. Renat's only got two hands and a couple of free hours a week to do this stuff. So I probably won't commit you to rewriting SAP with this new technology by the end of the year. (laughs) (laughs) So so, uh, we'll see how it goes, but... uh, uh, I suggest to leave that open. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, uh, ask your questions, comments, feedback, etc. at beingtheworst.com. We are on Twitter at beingtheworst. I'm on Twitter at KC Street, and Renat is at Abdulin. Last call, buddy. Anything else? You were on a mountain. Give me something good. You, you were hiking, the fresh air. It, it was beyond the may the force be with you. you have, I'm sure there's a deeper thought in there coming. I feel it. Go ahead, Renat. Say it. Say it. Always take warm clothes with you. <laughs> I'll leave you with that, people. Enjoy. <laughs> okay, right. take care, guys. Talk to you soon. Later. Bye-bye.